And now, for all of those listening from around the world, this is the moment you've been waiting for. It's time! And now, introducing the host, a strength and conditioning coach, real estate investor, athlete manager, and amateur food critic. He stands five feet, 11 inches tall, and he's on the road to 185 pounds. Podcasting from around the world by way of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Welcome back to my show, The Road to 185 Show. I am your host, Jared Saavedra. Today, I get to chat with Cody Davis. He's a 22-year-old real estate investor, and we get to discuss how he has accumulated such a huge portfolio in a short period of time. I believe he has close to 90 units of rental property, and he's gonna tell you how he purchased all of this through seller and creative finance. Most people, when they think of real estate investing, they think you need to have a lot of money to start. People will constantly reinforce excuse after excuse on why they can't start while people like Cody actually start. One thing I really like about Cody is that he's big on social capital and building relationships. It's what I believe sets him apart while some other investors you may see uh, just look at other people as a transaction. He also talks about how he positions his offers in front of sellers with confidence and how sharing your story will bring you opportunities you've never thought were possible. If you're new, please like, share, subscribe. Let's get this episode started. Episode 13 with Cody Davis. How's it going, man? You doing all right? Yeah, doing all right. Uh, just keeping busy. Yeah, <laughs> got a lot to talk about, man. So, welcome to the Road to 185 show, man. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so this show it's about uh, transition, reinvention, transformation, and your story is super intriguing to me. Being you know the age that you are and already have the experiences that you have, tell us a little bit about the transition from going to from a part-time gymnastics instructor to a full-time real estate investor? Yeah, well, it definitely didn't happen overnight, but I had coached gymnastics through my high school years. And when I got out of high school, I decided to go to a community college for business. And probably two quarters in, I had someone message me online. They were a real estate broker in the area and they said I should get my license and drop out of college. So I did that and I didn't sell a whole lot. I didn't have a lot of family or friends in the business. And by a lot, I mean, I didn't have any. And so I didn't get any sales. And I started learning from him. If you stick with it, it'll work out. Practice the numbers, start reaching out to people. And through that, I started learning the math on small multifamily, duplex, triplex, fourplex. And about nine months after I got started, I bought a 
seller finance 12 plex to kick off the career. Wow. That's, that's intense for sure. Uh, tell me about, I mean, tell me about that deal. I mean, I was going to go into one of your other deals, but how did that kind of come about? How did you, what are the resources that you use to kind of educate yourself on the process before jumping to something like that? Well, the 12 plex, that was the very first deal I'd ever done. And my family had never bought a rental property before. Didn't have a lot of guidance there. I didn't know exactly what I was doing, but that was a deal that was on the market. And they offered what's called seller financing, meaning that I didn't need a bank loan. And essentially I borrowed hard money rate, like really expensive money for the down payment from uh, an investor based out of the real estate brokerage that I was at. And the seller financed the rest. So I was able to buy this thing with a signature and it cash flowed day one. Awesome. And even so, even with that interest rate, it's still cash flowed. Yep. So cash flowed a little over 800 bucks a month. Okay. And so what, I guess, what were some of your other struggles once you, once you first started in real estate? What were some of the other challenges? Well, I didn't know anything and I thought I did. Being 19 years old, I thought I knew a lot and I didn't know anything about the business. I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know who I needed to talk to. I didn't know how to fix problems or talk to tenants or manage properties. So I had a big struggle learning how to get through all that. But at the end of the day, it came down to just meeting with people that had done what I wanted to do. And I got to learn from them. And through that, I grew my skill set, and things got easier over time. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, so from that point, so was it a year? Was it two years? I mean, you, you've only been in, in the game for what, three or four years altogether, right? Um, just shy of three now. Just shy of three. Okay. So from going from a 12 plex to the next big one, I mean, that's, that's a triple, right? It's a 30, it was a 35 or 36. I bought a 12, a 12, a six, and then a 38. Oh my goodness. Okay. 38. So even with that deal right then and there, um, how did you find it? Uh, did all, I mean, obviously all of your experiences with, you know, the, the two other sixes and the 12 obviously helped, helped with that. How did you find it? Kind of how did you fund it? Was it kind of the same investor, same kind of interest rate? H tell me, talk to me through that process. Cause that's something that I'm super interested in. That's why I've been following you quite a bit. Um, ever since your interview with Bigger Pockets, I'm like, that's exactly what I want to get into. So selfishly, I get to learn along alongside the audience here. Yeah, the 38 was a different deal. Prior to doing the 38, I had bought two 12 plexes and a six flex. And I had structured all of it as debt. I had borrowed the down payment from investors. They were different every time. And I borrowed the rest through seller financing. To this day, I've never had a bank loan. The 38 was the one that was a little different because I bought it. It was seller finance and I bought it for 2 million bucks. Seller finance, 1.7 million. The problem with that deal was I had no money and I needed $300,000. So I had about 300,000 reasons why I couldn't do that deal. I ended up bringing in equity partners, which I later cashed out. But a lesson that I learned is that equity costs you more tomorrow and debt costs you more today because you got to make your mortgage payment regardless. But if you have an equity partner, if there's no cash flow, there's no cash flow. The problem is with equity is you got to buy them out in the future. And so it costs more. So I structured it as equity. Looking back on it, I probably would have done it as a loan, as debt. I brought in three partners for the 100,000 each. They did 100, 100, 100, bought it with a signature, and then 
I did have a little bit of money with my business partner, Christian, that he had, uh, he did a HELOC on a house and I did a house flip. So I had a little bit of money for reno, but uh, we had contributed a hundred thousand dollars as well into renovations. And once we got the cash flow up on the asset, we were able to cash out the equity partners. And when you bring on um, new income, it can support new debt. So actively, Christian and I are the only people on that deal. We're doing our first bank loan, our first refinance, and that'll lower our payment significantly. Okay. So it was through the, the refinance process with, with the bank or was it through still through seller financing? You just, were you you're just able to refinance along with them? So I am refinancing out of the seller finance note right now with a bank. This will okay. be my first bank loan. And it, it should be easier to do it on this than it would be to do on some of the smaller properties because the cash flow is higher. Okay. And how do you position yourself being, being younger, right? How do you position yourself to a seller that, I mean, for them to have an asset that's $3 million, they, they've obviously, they, they know a thing or two and you know, they, they're probably pretty wealthy themselves. How do you position yourself in that deal for them to make, you know, your offer attractive compared to other people? Yeah, well, instilling confidence comes down to you have to transfer the confidence from yourself to them. And so if you're not super confident in the beginning, then it's going to come down to just building up your skills to where you know you can perform. 38 was not my first deal. I had done a few to build my confidence because I, growing up, I was super, super nervous, very introverted. And Doing that today, like being if I, I was introverted, it'd be very hard to do that. It'd be very hard to position myself. But today, going out there as a, a younger investor, I'm just being myself. I'm not dressed and doing press. I'm just, I'm going to show up as me. And they're either going to like it or they're not. But I'm going to let them know that, hey, I, I can perform. And even if I'm a little nervous, I have to believe that I can make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. So, few things with that. So that, that 12 plex, how, with the interest rate being so high, were you just kind of cool? Um, were you just kind of cool paying that interest rate every single month? Cause it still made sense for you because it cash flowed or what was kind of the exit strategy eventually there? Like, what are some other ways besides, since you just said that you refinanced out of it, um, through a bank, which makes hundred percent sense to, to pay off your equity partners. What are some other strategies that, that you're able to get the money back to an investor? Well, I had paid up on the 38, I had paid off the, I cashed out the equity partners before the bank loan. Ah, okay. Okay. And it's hard to do that in the beginning. Right. That's right. You get your first two deals. You just have to buy time. I only have two criteria when I'm going out, two qualifying questions. How do I buy it? And how do I never lose it? That's the only way I look at real estate. Yes, it has to be in a great location. I'm not going to compromise on that. But after we establish that, how do I buy it? How do I never lose it? Because if I can answer those two questions, I'm set. The hard money on the first deal, I figured out how I was going to buy it. The question of how I never lose it comes down to long-term debt and cash flow. The 90% loan from the seller was a 30-year fully amortized mortgage, meaning that I never have to pay it off early. It'll just pay itself off like a house. And it cash flowed day one. So to solidify and make sure that I'm never going to lose it, I just had to figure out how do I pay it off? And I ended up paying off that. It was originally a one-year loan for the down payment. I extended it. It cost money um, that I ended up using the cash flow pay. But 
it took two years to pay that off. And in the meantime, I had been buying other stuff because the more I bought, more cash flow I had, the easier it was to pay off the first loan. And the way that I've played the game is expand really quickly and then be a really good money manager and use all the cash Stabilize, flow. Stabilize, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I saw you on an interview when they asked you, hey, like, are you looking for cash flow or more appreciation? You said, like, I, I want it all. You know, yeah. <laughs> I want it all. It's kind of explain that philosophy and, and kind of that, that mentality because I'm very similar to that. It's like, I'm not looking for just one particular thing. There's, there, there can be a balance or somewhat of a balance uh, in between both of those. Yeah, some people just buy for cash flow and their equity never builds. And, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, they'll pay down the loan over time or they won't. You know, it depends how they structure their debt or if they pay cash. But I don't want to buy in the Midwest where stuff isn't going to appreciate as quickly because I want to multiply my money. The problem is if you buy just for appreciation and you can't hold it because you can't cash flow it, well, it doesn't matter how much it's worth in five years if you lose it. So my thought process was let's buy uh, small to mid-sized multifamily that is valued on the income. So that as I get the income up, the value goes up and the cash flow goes up. So I'm getting the best of both worlds. I just bought a, a seller finance building where the average rent was $500 and it's still below market today, but we're up over $940 average today. Wow. That's a huge rental bump. We didn't just take that to the tenants and say, Hey, you got to pay more. We took over management and some of the tenants ended up shuffling around to other rentals. And when they leave, we remodel it and then bring the rent up. And the average rent over there is closer to 1100. We're at anywhere from nine to 975. But the cash flow goes way up. So when it was at 500 and the value goes way up because it, it nets more money, it's worth more to the next person. Yeah, absolutely. How do you, well, really everyone, how did they, um, evaluate the difference of, you know, a fourplex and below to commercial, what is five units or, no, or more. I actually just found this out, you know, within this last year, I, I had no idea I, when I was looking for these type of, of deals, I was kind of comparing, you know, trying to find comps with, with bigger complexes. And little did I know that, you know, about cap rate and stuff. I know you're not, you're not you're kind of your philosophy or ment mentality on that as well. Cap rate, it, it, you could explain that for sure. But kind of for the newbie investor, explain the difference between how to kind of approach and how to, to evaluate both of those types of real estate. Yeah. So with houses, duplex, triplex, and fourplex, it's valued based on similar properties next door. And that's it. So if there's a house down the street from your house and it's identical, they're going to comp it based on that sale. On five units plus, it's based on the income. You could have a 10 plex and I could have a 10 plex and they could be exactly the same. But now the beauty is if I'm a better manager than you, if you're getting 50,000 a year and I'm getting 80,000 a year, think about it like an, an actual investment. The one that pays more is going to be worth more. Someone mm -hmm. can pay a higher price and get the same exact return. So while your property is exactly the same, same you're built, everything's beautiful. If, if mine makes more money because I managed it better, someone can afford to pay more for mine. And they're going to get a commercial loan, which is based a lot more based on the income and the performance of the property than it would be on a single family all the way up to fourplex because they're going to judge you a lot more on the smaller deals. 
than the bigger deals because the bigger deals can usually afford to pay for themselves than management. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So explain like the cap rate and, and how that can, can change over time. Yeah, a lot of people love the cap rate. Bigger pockets mm-hmm. made that big. Cap rate is not the most important thing out there. It's actually one of the least important pieces. It, didn't you and Christian get get some flack for that for saying that? Yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. But, but no, it makes it, it makes sense though. Yeah, no, keep going. It makes hundred percent sense to me. I feel the same yeah. way. Cap rate is the cash on cash return if you paid cash. Meaning, if you're going out and you're buying a hundred thousand dollar duplex in the Midwest, and at the end of the year, after all expenses paid, you paid cash for it. You put eight thousand dollars of cash flow in your pocket. That's an 8% cap rate. Now, if you only netted 4000 on a $100,000 cash purchase, well, now you're getting a 4% cap rate. And the idea is you can do apples to apples comparison on storage units, single family rentals, land leasing. You can do it on farms. But you can see, okay, what would I actually make on my cash if I wrote a check for it? And the reason that people do that is because everybody's debt is different. You can do seller finance debt at 0% interest, or you can do bank loans today at 6 and 7%, hard money at 12 Everybody's debt is variable, so they just want something across the board that can be used to say, okay, this is similar and different than this. Yeah, that's spot on. What, what, what do you think someone, and you've probably dealt with this before, maybe you haven't quite yet, what would be the motivation for a seller to sell um, their property at a 0% interest. Like I've heard people talk about it. I, you know, Pace Morby is someone who I also follow as well. And, you know, it seems like he always comes across this and I, I have zero, I mean, for the tax benefits and stuff, but that could be really with any seller finance deal. But what is it about 0% that people would even entertain that? Yeah. So it's just a little different philosophy, but if you do 0%, the way the amortization schedule works, it'd be hard to map it out on, on this without a graph, but mm-hmm. it can adjust the payments quite a bit. But in return, the seller can get a significantly higher price. And so instead of just paying a, an interest payment, they're basically taking on the interest to the actual purchase price, but it could actually lower the monthly payment to the investor. Ah, okay. So kind of giving them what they want or closer to what they want as far as the actual sales price. And it kind of lets you spread that over time. Okay. That makes sense for sure. You're someone that's really big on, well, there's actually a lot of people that are big on, on building private capital, raising private capital, but you're someone that kind of takes a different approach as well. And this is why like, I find you really interesting in your story is that you're big on like human capital on social capital, as opposed to that. How would you explain to people who come to you or what's your response to it when they come to you and say, Hey, like I want to raise private funds. I want to find private lenders. What is, what, what's kind of your explanation um, and kind of like your thought process before you give them, you know, those resources or whatnot. Yeah. A lot of people want to go find money and I encourage folks to stop doing that. You don't need money until you have an opportunity. I've dealt with a lot of people that are getting Big. I mean, some of them are bigger than me and some of them are just getting started, but they're all about you know, locking down the money first. And that's not mm-hmm. the first step. You should find an opportunity before you start working the, the deal. You know, what's the opportunity? What's the story behind the property? 
instead of going out and getting a whole bunch of money, you got to have a, a plan. You got to have an idea for it. And it's a lot easier to come up with money when you have something that's tangible that you can show people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're big on building your network then. I mean, that kind of leads to that for sure. I seen a video video on you that you can, it was a five minute video it was super informative. What are some strategies that people can do and implement right away that are fairly simple that to build their network, uh, their network, if they don't really have the resources to start? Well, establish where you're going first. You know, if you want to go buy 10 houses, go find someone who owns 10 houses. The work with a title company and say, hey, I want a list of people that own X amount of real estate. Or I want to see a list of all the owners in this county. Can't do it in every county. Some counties are going to cost you money. Others, it won't. And so I would just go out and meet with people that have done what you want to do and give them a call, try and pick their brain over coffee. That's exactly how I did what I did as quickly as I did. I just went and met with people that had bought a whole bunch of multifamily. Some of these people owned half a city and I just wanted to learn how they did it. I'm flying out to Colorado to meet with a, a family who ended up buying a ton of LA and they have a very, very low amount of debt. I mean, I'm talking hundreds of units. It's incredible. So I'm going to meet with the people that have done things. I have no idea how they did. And through that, I build out a network of very sophisticated investors that give me a little different perspective than I could get out of a book or even the people that are local to where I'm at. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how do you leverage your story and how would you suggest and recommend to others? Like, Hey, you, you got to put yourself out there at some point. People got to know what, what you're doing in order them for, for them to take an interest in what you're doing. Yeah. So I mapped it out as three sectors. You got relatable points, which is your past. You got your goals, which is your future, where you're going and significance, which at the end of the day is why you're doing what you're doing, why you're going where you're going. People will talk to you based on your past. They'll work with you based on your future and they'll buy into who you are based on your significance. And most people know their story. Very few know how to present it. So I would figure out if I was starting over how to go communicate with others and effectively communicate my story. So you got to know what you're going to share with people. Even if you've got an opportunity, you know, you get to, go share it with people that are out there that own real estate or own a business or startup. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what you're going to share, who you are, yeah, you may know who you are, but you may not know how to, to share that with people the right way. Now yeah. you're just at an impasse, you're stuck. So yeah. I would figure out how to map that out and probably map it on a piece of paper, draw out the little circle, quantify what's where and, um, practice sharing it with folks. Yeah, absolutely. When people ask you like, hey, Cody, what's your why? How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, it's evolved a bit. And at the very beginning, I mean, I'm, I'm a car guy. I love cars. Okay. okay. And I realized I wasn't going to be able to afford the stuff I wanted to do. And even the cars I wanted to buy working a job, I'm just not that smart. I've gotten smarter over the years with the real estate stuff. But when it comes to you know, life skills, I'm, I've never been the smartest person. So I was like, I'm not going to get a great job that could afford that life. And as I got into real estate, I was like, well, shoot, I could retire my mom. And so I've got to stabilize a few of the properties I've got, but this year I'll have enough cash flow to, to knock out her biggest payment, which is housing. I can just knock that out this year. And 
So that's a big thing for me. I want to awesome. give her the option. Yeah, I want to give her the option to do what she wants when she wants. She'll probably keep working, but she won't have to is the right. goal. And so knock out housing. And if there's something else that she needs, then I'll, I'll work on taking care of that. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm sure she's super thankful for that and to see, you know, see your growth and, and be able to, to help others and give others opportunities. Any final thoughts on, you know, anything else out there that you would tell kind of newbie investors who, I mean, there's a lot of them, man. I mean, I'm sure you talk to people all the time that are, that are always on the fence. They're, you know, they're just consuming so much content, but there's no action behind that. Um, you got any final words for the, for those people that they're, probably listening. Our, our, our podcast is going to be is with young entrepreneurs. So those are the people really listening to this. So they don't know a ton about real estate. They're in different fields or whatnot. Um, but I'm super passionate about it. I'm super interested in, in, in it. And I think, you know, these kind of conversations are going to be able to, to spark a lot of people's interest. What are some things that you would tell them to, to kind of get them going, get them started? Yeah. Keep it simple. If it's not simple, you don't need to do it. At the end of the day, there's a lot of people that are complicated in the game. It's not complicated. The math is really easy. Income less expenses equals cash flow. You want that to be a positive number. How do you buy it? How do you never lose it? It is really that simple. Everybody's overcomplicating the game. And just because it makes money doesn't mean it makes sense. And just because it makes sense doesn't mean it makes money. There's a lot of shiny object syndrome where things mm -hmm. sound cool. Digital salmon, crypto fish, like cool. You make a little bit of money with it, but go repeat that over and over for a long period of time. Not just the past couple of years, but what's been around forever. Everybody needs housing. Yes, it's fun to have some fun money, but as we saw, that's not the most stable when you're investing in things that haven't been around for decades. So invest in the things that have solid principles behind them. People need housing. They're willing to pay for that. And if you build a business off of cash flow for the long term, your odds of success go up. Absolutely, man. Cody, thank you so much for your time, man. If people have any more questions for you, how can they get a hold of you? Do you all have you and Christian have your own podcast or we don't. Oh, okay. Or a YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah, we are on YouTube. If you just look up Cody and Christian multifamily strategy or Christian Osgood or Cody Davis Real Estate, it'll pop up. Okay. Awesome, man. Cody, I appreciate you, man. We'll be in touch for, for more, uh, maybe another episode at some point. Sounds like a plan. All right, man. I appreciate it.